0: What are we going to talk about today, Jeff?
1: Thought transference.
0: Thought transference? Yes, from
1: the Memeplex.
0: Welcome to another episode of whatever we are calling this. Jeff Wright discusses their research into memes, visual rhetoric, and of course, thought transference. Jeff Wright is a PhD student in the Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies program at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Their current research delves into visual rhetoric, adaptation studies, and convergence culture in an examination of the role of the Amazon archetype from classic mythology to modern iterations of the feminist warriors in comic book genres. In this episode, Jeff will be discussing some of the core theoretical elements they are employing to examine popular comic genres. Before humans invented written languages, we etched and painted images on cave walls.
1: And long before the letters came along, there was visual rhetoric. We developed language before we developed writing. And when we sought a way to capture language, we had to go to visual symbols and representations to do so. Our textual syntax and vocabulary. Are an agreed upon series of visual representations of language, or what we call letters in the English language. Linguistics says that language is what gives us the ability to abstract thought, ask hypothetical questions, and philosophize in general. And if you keep tracing this concept back in time, you'll find that all of this started with a few brain cells and some firing neurons what we call thought in some Neanderthals' brain some hundreds of thousands of years ago. So thank your great, 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 great Grandma Cro-Magnon for that one. Several hundred thousand years later, uh, Russian philosopher and literary scholar Mikhail Bakhtin gave us the concept of the utterance. In its simplest definition, the utterance is the smallest unit of discourse you can reduce something to before it loses all meaning. This can occur at the lexical level, if you think about words that have multiple suffixes and prefixes, and there's a huge discursive difference between logical and illogical or consequent versus inconsequential. However, Flammable and inflammable both mean easily set on fire, despite the prefix. Someone really dropped the ball there. But it also works for the syntactic level, or at least clauses. For example, formal English doesn't do well without a subject, verb, object, structure of some sort. If you start removing any of those from sentences, the communication may fall apart. You go stand by blank, needs that blank filled in to make any sense. Fast forward a few decades, and in a book about genetic evolution titled The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins drops a tiny little chapter that has nothing to do with genetics into the middle of it. In this chapter, he basically coins the term meme. His theory is that a meme is the smallest unit of cultural meaning. So basically a more universal form of the utterance. However, Dawkins goes on to say that just like biological genes, means can evolve, mutate, and go through a natural selection process, just like biological human evolution. What's more, it's going to take place lightning fast compared to the hundreds of thousands of years that biological evolution has taken. The scholars Bartolotti and Hutchin actually put this to the test and begin theorizing the practical ways means evolve. Gary Bartolotti is a biologist that studies genetic adaptation, but Linda Hutchin will go on to become a pioneer in the humanities field of adaptation studies and the way means and stories are parodied or remain static or change and evolve in the various adaptation processes that occur in culture. Susan Blackmore comes along and gives us two terms that make this all much clearer, the meme plex, our own thoughts and minds, and the meme pool, a cultural pool of thoughts. And just to bring it full circle, I think Dawkins did a very tongue-in-cheek thing by tossing this theory
0: from their meme plex into a meme pool to see if it would evolve. I guess it did. Uh, so at this point, you are saying we all have thoughts that we can reduce to memes and put these out into a meme pool if we choose to? Exactly. And this is why you call it thought transference?
1: Yes, uh, as rhetorician Doug Downs once said, rhetoric begins in the biology of how sentient bodies experience information and interaction via symbols. Every utterance, every meme began somewhere someone's thought or idea. They put it out into the meme pool. Bartolotti and Hutchin took Dawkins' meme from the meme pool and evolved it to a formal theory. Then they put it back out into the meme pool in the form of articles and books. Blackmore comes along with their own book about all of this. I get a hold of it and start rolling it around in my brain. And by the time it goes back into the meme pool, it has mutated dozens of times. I know it sounds like something out of a comic book, but we
0: are all just sharing or transferring thoughts here. That explains the adaptation process and thought transference but how does visual rhetoric factor into this? And can you explain how it fits into your research in comic books and films?
1: The concept behind visual rhetoric piggybacks off the formal school of philosophy, rhetoric. Uh, Aristotle Aristotle basically laid out the foundations of what might be easiest to call the philosophy of persuasion. It's where we get the three appeals, logos, ethos, and pathos, or the mnemonic I tell students, logic, ego, and passion. We also get Kairos or the timeliness of things from Aristotle. Visual rhetoric uses all of this and more to analyze what is visually represented. From a memetic standpoint, a single square blank white panel with a black outline doesn't have any cultural meaning. But we add a human figure to it. It's almost something, but it still needs more. Let's give the figure breasts and a star-spangled costume. Now we're getting the picture, pun intended. Now it has some cultural meaning, at least if you recognize the visual cues, red boots, bulletproof bracelets, a golden lariat, stars on the bottom, and her logo, a big double W up top, it's Wonder Woman. Even without the double W, the patterns match up. You can show people cropped sections of R2-D2 from Star Wars, and people can identify that it is indeed the droid you are looking for by those blue and white geometric patterns. So a meme can exist without the text, but text alone would be a discursive utterance. It could also be a meme by mimetic by itself. The word bamf has cultural meaning by itself. If you read the X-Men comics and know who Nightcrawler is and that the sound that is textually represented
0: whenever he teleports away. Uh, Bazinga is another one. And where do Amazons fit into all of this? I am assuming it leads up to Wonder Woman. Of course, what really interested me about
1: this particular archetype is that a lot of our evidence of Amazons in Greek mythology comes from mosaics and pottery images. Most societies have a high rate of illiteracy till around the 18th and 19th centuries. Prior to that, Amazons were warriors on pottery with something like circular spirals on their chests to represent breasts. Fast forward a few thousand years and we have characters like Wonder Woman wearing armor in the comic books and on screens. The visual meme has evolved to be more detailed breastplates on a more detailed image in a comic book or costume shop on a Warner Brothers film set.
0: There does seem to be a lot of focus on breasts in your research. Is that odd? Yes, probably, but then again, nothing distinguishes
1: visual representations of women better. It's very strange to me that the nipple is this huge visual red flag on so many different levels in a lot of modern cultures. In the comics Code Authority era, even male characters like Conan the Barbarian had to cover his nipples with a blue shirt. People have some extreme opinions about breastfeeding, especially in public. And there are actual laws about breasts and nipples in the United States. And I really became focused on the breast because I was looking at the women who tattooed their chest after mastectomies. I saw a television show and noticed they were not blurring out the woman's mastectomy, but they would blur out her other breast, And that's weird, right? And then there is mythology about Amazon's performing mastectomies. Uh, A lot of uh, classical art likes to expose a single breast, I guess, just to make sure there is no confusion about who it is wielding that sword or spear. And then I stumbled upon a very fascinating graphic novel, uh, a textless comic book called About Betty's Boob by Vero
0: Cazzo and Julie Rochelou. About Betty's Boob. By textless, do you mean just images? Yes.
1: uh, There are no speech balloons or thought bubbles.
0: Somehow they
1: managed to make a story about breast cancer survival very funny. Betty is struggling with the way the world now perceives her after her mastectomy. I worked at the VA hospital when I was in AmeriCorps, and I remember how many times I would flinch whenever I would see an amputee. And I don't know, for that reason, the comic really resonated with me on that level. It's a form of visual dysphoria at first, but over time you stop flinching. And by the time Betty
0: starts stuffing her bra with an apple, you're just laughing. And how does this fit into the cultural studies field? Well, Cultural
1: Studies basically looks at the communicative products of a culture, such as books and movies. I have a peer who's doing research on Italian hip-hop music as another example. I mean, this often requires a multi or interdisciplinary approach. So in my case, I am bringing in a few different disciplines to explore the way cultures communicate through imagery, how humans use space, and what its rhetorical situation is. I'm personally employing a lot of feminism, adaptation studies and convergent culture theory to comic book stuff. And there's more to it than that, but analyzing popular culture is where a lot of our field tends to exist these days. Plus I get to work on a dissertation that focuses on
0: women who carry swords and spears and a woman stuffing her bra with an apple. And of course the apple is another weird symbol of womanhood in Western culture. So is Betty an Amazon?
1: Definitely, at least in modern terms. Betty represents that strength we all hope we have, right? I mean, we all aspire to be like Wonder Woman or any number of other superheroes. Ultimately, that is how memes and archetypes like Amazons get perpetuated for hundreds of years. Textually, there is not a lot about Amazons outside of some ancient plays and. Yet Wonder Woman was on the inaugural issue of one of the most famous feminist textual periodicals founded by Dorothy Pittman and Gloria Steinem, Miss Magazine. That ancient image of an Amazon with spirals on her chest has evolved to represent feminism, like all of feminism. But that is fantastical symbolism, right? betty is an every woman character something more real more relatable and betty still embarks on a hero's journey similar to anything gilgamesh or jason did and she is a parable of how to deal with trauma and frankly you know just how to be an awesome person so if betty is not an amazon and Greek, uh,
0: greek tragedy i i don't know who is And we'll leave it at that. This has been another episode of whatever we are calling this. Thank you, Wonder Woman, Zena, and Betty, along with our researcher, Jeff Wright, from the Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies Program at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Their contact information can be found on our website. We would also like to thank Guillermo for sound and editing, and anything the University Branding Department will require.